Today's sermon text is Philippians 3, 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is God's word. Man, thank you, Cheryl. Um, just want to start off by isolating a phrase that's given in the first verse that was read this morning. Um, it's the second part of that first verse. And Paul says that I press on to make it my own. We'll talk about what that it is in a moment. That thing that he presses on, runs toward to make his own. But then he says this, that the motivation, the engine that drives his pursuit of making that it his own is this. Christ Jesus has made me his own. Christ Jesus has made me his own. The reason I'm starting there is because we've been talking about some tough concepts over the last several weeks. We've been spending a lot of time talking about death. Death. We've been focusing on those two beautiful verses in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where Paul, in expressing his deepest ambition, says that he wants Christ's resurrection, to know Christ, and along with knowing Christ, that he would know and experience his resurrection, and he also says that he might be conformed to his death, that he might share in his death. Some translations say that he might fellowship in his death. And I think what we often miss when we read that is what Paul is saying more specifically is that he might fellowship with Jesus in his death. And he says, this is my chief ambition, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That's his chief ambition. And that is a tough pill to swallow. I love the first part of that verse. To know Jesus, the power of his resurrection. But Paul, without missing a beat, without taking another breath, adds in that I may fellowship with him in the heat, in the pain of suffering. I don't like the idea of suffering. I don't want it. But as I've mentioned in previous weeks, just because we don't like the idea of suffering doesn't make suffering go away. Suffering is a clear and present reality in every one of our lives. Every one of our lives. Every one of our lives. Suffering is there. Suffering is to be dealt with. Suffering is to be faced Suffering is to be responded to. What do I do with you suffering? How do I handle this? 
What do I do with myself, my heart, my thoughts, my actions? And before we get into any of those, that stuff, before we try to attempt to answer any of those questions, I want us to start with a hope that Paul gives for us who follow Jesus. That what fuels our pursuit of Christ, that what drives us in our love for Jesus, that what is the, that, that engine behind that cry, Lord, that I may know you, the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings, if by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What drives that is a deep conviction that he has already been grasped by Christ. He has already been seized by Jesus. He says in this text that I am a possession of Christ. I am part of him. I am an extension of Jesus. We are not talking in this text about becoming something that we can't become. We are not telling, as I often say, zebras to become giraffes. That is not what we're saying. That is not what the scriptures ask of us. The scriptures are saying Jesus people, people that are of Jesus, who follow Jesus, who believe in Jesus, people who have the spirit of Jesus inside of them and the grace of Jesus driving them, be like Jesus, be who you are. Make no mistake, he is not saying here that we must aspire to earn something in order to be grasped by Jesus. We already are his. As David preached as he prayed this morning, we belong to him. The gospel has laid claim to us. How do we know this? Because those of us in this room that this is true of, our hearts cannot be separated from him. For some of us in here, the harder that we run, the more miserable that we feel, the more tension that we experience, the more less like ourselves and dehumanized we become because Jesus has staked his claim on us and the only response that is appropriate, we might as well just give in, is to give ourselves to him fully and finally. This is what Paul is saying here. If you are a Jesus kind of person, that means you belong to him. He doesn't belong to you. You belong to him. You are his. You are his. This, this great, there's a great exchange that's taking place here. If you go back to Philippians chapter 2, something beautiful is stated here. 2, 5 through 8. This is one of those texts that I wish I had more time to get into when I preached this several weeks ago, but something is said here that is stunning. It's stunning. Two, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, Have this mind in yourselves. Why can Paul tell Jesus people to have this particular kind of mind? Because they are owned by Jesus. They are grasped by Jesus. To live against this is to go against the essence of who we are. That a person who has been born from above, the Spirit of God has entered into that person's life, and that person not to be on a path of growing love which looks like tenderness and a servant's heart and a servant's poise. 
That's impossible. It can't happen. We must give in to the impulse of the Spirit who is in all of those who claim to know Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours already, so cultivate it. Use it. Use it. Who? Jesus Christ. Who? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Jesus rejected the notion that I must be in heaven and never become a man and maybe we can figure out how to save this planet. He rejected that false notion. He embraced the call of God that was on his life. But emptied himself emptied himself of his position by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's one a brilliant commentator that I read who when he was discussing these verses... He had this to say about what it looks like to have this mind in yourself. He said it this way. Live in such a way that you make yourself inferior to everyone. View others as superior to you. View others as better than you. View others as more worthy than you. View others as superior to you. The implications of that are enormous. Enormous. Think about all of the relational tension that you have in your life right now. Jesus Christ's answer is that we lower ourselves and take on his mind by considering those people in our lives as superior to us and adopting a servant's poise in that relationship. A servant's poise. Amen? Amen. This is what Jesus did for us. That's what Jesus did for us. He lowered himself for our sake. And then if you look at Philippians 1.29, I mentioned this verse last week, check this out. For it has been granted to you. That word there for granted is gift. It's a gift. That's where we get our word charismatic from. It means charis in the Greek. It's a gift. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ... You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So for our sakes, Christ lowered himself and suffered. And for Christ's sake, we lower ourselves and embrace the sufferings that are brought into our lives for the sake of knowing Jesus. I'm not trying to be funny when I say this, but that never generates amens. But if Paul the Apostle were sitting here, he would be, I think he would be shouting me down right now and with his Greek and 
uh, uh, tongue and Hebrew dialect. I think he really would be. Because this is his chief aspiration, that I may know him. That's where we stop. And in Paul's mind, that I may know him, which is one and the same as experiencing the power of his resurrection and the torture of his sufferings, that I may know him. He is not saying that everybody should die on a cross just like Jesus. That's not what he's saying. Because usually when the New Testament discusses the idea of suffering, it's talking about all sufferings that we face in our lives. The trials and testing of our faith, sickness, disease, bad relationships, bad marriages, bad bosses, you name it. Whatever suffering is in your life, that is legitimate suffering. I had a person look at me this week over coffee and say, you know, uh, I've been going through this. And, and, he, and then he followed it with, with the sense of shame. He said, but it's not like I've got stage three cancer. And I stopped him before he went on. And I said, yeah, but you really are suffering though, right? This hurts, right? It really hurts. So why don't you call it what it is? It's suffering. It's suffering. Don't adopt a super spiritual poise that your suffering isn't as, as suffery like somebody else is. If it hurts, you're suffering. And it's in the midst of that suffering that we can adopt what the, the Apostle Paul is teaching us and what Paul lived out, that that is a gift from God. How in the world is suffering a gift from God? It must do something. It must do something. Let's look at verse 12. Not only have I already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So here's the question. What is it that he's talking about? What is he pressing forward to attain? And that, that phraseology, pressing forward, is an athletic term. It means like running a foot race, a sprint. But it also means hunting. That's the kind of emotion Paul is feeling around pursuing Jesus, pursuing this it, this elusive it that we're trying to figure out. So he's talking about, not, I've not already obtained this. I love Paul's humility there. I've not already obtained this or am perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And the it that he's talking about is both the resurrection and knowing Jesus. Now, I beg you to bear with me for a moment. I believe that every church in America should be indoctrinated on what our core hope is, the resurrection. We get wrapped around the axle about so much stuff in our world. I'm not saying some of these things aren't worthy of discussion and even debate. But we get so wrapped around the axle about stuff that I wonder, are we forgetting in the heat of our ugliness and tension and all the things that we worry about and the things that we feel anxiety for and the things that we love to make passive-aggressive comments about, all that stuff, have we forgotten what our fundamental future is that can never be taken from us? That at an, at an undisclosed point in the future, Jesus Christ will return visibly and he will judge the nations. Every person who has ever lived will stand before King Jesus in the judgment. And Jesus, this is obviously a very shortened version, Jesus will take this planet 
and renew it and turn it into the new creation. It will be a physical planet. We are not going to spend eternity in heaven playing harps on clouds. That is not what we're going to do. We are going to spend eternity on earth with new and glorified bodies that will never die. And we will run on dirt paths. We will climb trees. We will eat great meals. We will swim in lakes and oceans. We will do wonderful things with one another. And most of all, we will be able to gaze into the face of Jesus. And we will not say like Paul did to the Corinthians that I see in a glass darkly or dimly. We will have full knowledge of the most beautiful person in all of the universe. We will know him. And so some of the debate around this is, is Paul talking about grasping for or trying to attain the resurrection or knowing Jesus? The answer is yes. Because right now, my friends, Jesus is hard to know at certain times. When we're suffering, Jesus is hard to see, isn't he? Isn't he? When things are going bad in our lives, Jesus is hard to feel. When things are going really good, we oftentimes make the mistake of saying, God is so good, and man, I've just sensed the presence of God, and maybe we do. But really what we're experiencing is simply the emotional lift of good experiences. So we we get it backwards a lot. I'm not disputing that God's good and God doesn't bless us. Every good and perfect gift is from him. Rejoice in that when you're blessed. Man, please, by all means. I'm not glorifying suffering as something we should all shoot for and every good thing should be forgotten. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. But as Western evangelicals, the pendulum has swung so far into the blessing realm, we have no theology or framework for sufferings. None. When it happened to it, when it happens to us, we act like this is strange and weird and should be the exception and not the rule. My friends, the sufferings that God gives us are a blessing and they are to accomplish something. They accomplish something. And it's in the midst of this, this suffering and this pain, that Paul somehow is able to get a better grasp of the beauty of Jesus. How does that work? How does that work? In the resurrection, we will see him so clearly. In the resurrection, we get Jesus 100%. In the resurrection, we get to gaze into those eyes of fire And we don't see our judgment, but we see a fiery, fervent love for each and every one of us who call upon his name. How does that work? If you remember last week, I talked about this person named Sue. Um, I got to spend about five or six hours uh, meeting with a a man that I love and I've come to love because I met him for the first time recently. But I've always respected and, and admired from afar. And his name is Paul E. Miller. And he wrote the book uh, that many of our our community groups have read, A Praying Life. It's anything that he writes, get it, because it's awesome. And um, I got to spend about five or six hours with some other pastors in Philadelphia a couple of months ago, just sitting with him and him teaching us. And it was incredible. And he told us this story of a girl named Sue. And he said this girl named Sue was a young adult, is a young adult. And every summer she serves at a camp 
that is specifically for children with special needs. And when she serves at this camp, she has to pay for it herself. She donates her own time when she goes to this camp. And the story that she was leaning into, walking into, was simply this. That if she spends her money and gives her time, she will get to minister to these hurting children and and bring relief indirectly or directly to these hurting families who often never get a break. And as a result of that, she is going to have incredible feelings of blessing and joy and gratification because she has made someone's life better, at least for just a few days. But two days into this week-long camp, she is unjustly accused, unkindly accused, unfairly accused by a mother of one of the special needs children that she was, that Sue is critical of her parenting. Sue had no recollection of this. Sue walked into the fray of being unfairly scrutinized. She was called into the offices of the camp leadership. She was interviewed, interrogated, it felt like. One thing led to another, and for the last three or four days of the camp, she served these children whose parents began to gossip about her. She was serving these children, unfairly scrutinized, with a very, very dark cloud over her. She went to Paul and his wife, who were at this camp as well, weeping and in tears. And they led her into helping her understand that you are experiencing a relationship with Jesus like you never have before. Because here's the deal. Jesus lowered himself to us, and we were ungrateful to him. And we mocked him, and we murdered him. And that showed his deep and desperate love for us. So Sue, rather than getting back blessings and encouragement and thanks from all these people at the camp, she got back a sense of betrayal, slander, sadness, depression, and a darkness settled in her soul. For the first time in her young life, she was serving Jesus and at the same time facing suffering and torment in a way that allowed her to be able to have the opportunity, because it's not automatic, the opportunity to meet Jesus in his sufferings. Paul then showed us something that um, I've known about for some time, and it's a thing called the J-curve. Anybody here heard of the J-curve? Anybody in this room? Nobody? I hadn't either uh, until a few months ago when some pastor friends of mine introduced me to it. It's not sophisticated, It's not meant to wow you. But it is intended to give you an illustration that's simple so that you can often go back to it and say, okay, where am I in God? And get perspective. And so he came up with this little diagram called the J-curve, and I'm going to show you the first slide, the J-curve. And it's simply what Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 discuss. Life, death, and resurrection. Life, death, and resurrection. You see, for Sue, she started out in life serving at this camp, serving these children, serving these families. But rather than experiencing a resurrection, which would have been thanks and and, uh, um, slaps on the back and hugs and we so appreciate you and being celebrated and loved, she experienced the death of slander. The death of slander. But it was in that death 
that she was able to meet Jesus. And she had the option. Option one, I can retreat into bitterness and say, forget it. I'll never come back to this camp ever again. I pour myself into these people's lives and this is the thanks that I get. Forget them. And that takes her on a path of cynicism and darkness and unforgiveness. Or she can adopt the poise that Jesus and Paul is promoting here. That I can find Jesus in these sufferings. Now here's what happened. The slander didn't go away. But Sue chose to enter into Jesus' sufferings in her suffering. And even though the slander and the betrayal did not go away, Sue, and this is a true story, exclaimed that she experienced the, the, the presence of God and the knowledge of God in ways that she said, there's no way I could have done this if things were always good. There's no way. I'm going to give you a, 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 tell you a, a little bit about myself. Uh, if you can move to, the, I'm sorry, the next slide, slide two, is what we want. We want to go from life to resurrection. We have, we, we have a deep conviction that death can serve no purpose at all in our lives. That we start out and we get to resurrection, and when we walk away from an experience, we want the joy of that resurrection. But that's not what the Bible teaches Remember, like I said last week, multiple, multiple, multiple theologians and scholars agree that Paul is not saying that I want to know God and I want to know Jesus and maybe I'll have to experience sufferings along the way. Paul is literally saying that to know Jesus means to know his sufferings and to know his resurrection. So it's not some sort of subjective thing. Well, I know Jesus. I love Jesus. That's, that can't even be like proven or assessed. He's saying that to know Jesus means that I know his suffering and I know his resurrection. Let me give you an example of my own life. Let's move to the next slide, please. When I took over this church eight years ago, in my immaturity and my lack of experience, and some of you are like, what, you, the thing you still have, um, my, my ambition was that I would, as a... At, and in my life, take over as a pastor, and then I would experience success. Now, when I say success, I don't mean that we would just have this mammoth church with millions of dollars and all that kind of stuff. I would have taken that, please understand, and I still would. But, uh, but my understanding of success was I'm going to preach the gospel. God's going to grow this church. It's going to be awesome. It's gonna, everything's going to be awesome, just like they say in the Lego movie. And so, um, But that didn't happen with me. That didn't happen with me. I felt, last year, if you remember, around uh, October, I stood up here and um, just made myself vulnerable to you guys and said, listen, here's some of the stuff that I've been thinking for the last couple of years, some of the struggles that I've been having in my life. Um, I feel I have, I'm dealing with feel, feelings of failure, um, temptation towards um, uh, to dream of what it would be like to be somewhere else. I mean, I'm not going anywhere. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to do what Tommy and Amy are doing, but... Um, um, <laughs> But, um, but I just had all these temptations, you know, you know, when you're suffering, the grass is always greener on the other side. Things look great over there. It's awesome over there. There'll be no problems over there. And so that's the resurrection that we're wanting in our lives when we're suffering and when we're experiencing death. We think that the change of circumstance will heal us. I'll never forget something my dad told me. He said, when people are in pain, they usually do several things. They get married, 
they become missionaries, they have kids, or they buy a house. And I have seen that so often in the people that I've ministered to over the years. When they're in a really tough spot, getting that house in that neighborhood will fix everything. And so the marriage is doing great. Everything is awesome. And man, six months later, back in the same place. Back in the same place. Back in the same place. Only Jesus can heal us. Opportunities don't heal us. Opportunities are great, but they don't heal us. Jesus heals us. And so this was my paradigm. I thought if I just preached the gospel, that, man, this church should be up and to the right and everything would be awesome. But that didn't happen with me. We lost people. We weren't able to pay off that building. We had to sell it. I'm grateful to God for that. And in the economy that we were in, it was almost inconceivable that somebody would come along and pay $8.5 million for a building in that economy back then. But God provided, as Jesus promised in the Sermon on the Mount, God provided. In recent years, I've seen good friends move on. People that we've poured into move away. Not always for bad reasons. And, and honestly, over the last couple of years, the people that have moved on from our church have been transferred out of town. We've had a ton of leaders that have moved on, with left, left, which left me with a feeling of sorrow. Like, man, I'm building relationships with all these folks. And, and then two years later, they're moving to Atlanta and Minneapolis and Kansas City and Dallas and all these other places. And man, what's the deal? I just feel like I can't get traction. And in that time, God was doing a wonderful wonderful thing in my own heart. And that leads us to our fourth slide today. Because even though I was experiencing feelings of failure and shame, I had friends who were churches were blowing up and, and not just, and not, not just churches that are blowing up, but like people who were talking, telling me amazing stories of the fruit that's taking place in their ministries. And I'm really, I really want that. And then I've got fear that every time somebody moves on that, man, um, how's that going to affect us financially? Because financially we weren't very well off at us for a long time. And then jealousy that other churches in this city were, were just, you know, growing and, and some people were going to other churches. And so I had a feeling, I had feelings of jealousy and envy and anger and even bitterness in some ways. And, and uh, my heart was just a mess. And the irony is, is that I'm trying to teach you folks how to walk through stuff like that in your life, and I'm getting killed by this stuff in my life. And then, as I began to engage Jesus in my death, in my shame, in my fear, something amazing happened to me. Amazing. I experienced a resurrection that has completely changed me. I'm not saying I've arrived, just like Paul. I'm not, I'm not there yet. I won't be there until Jesus comes back. So pray for me. But I am so thankful for what God has done in our lives. You know, Josh and Christy Marino, uh, they've moved away. Oh, wonderful people. If he was here now, he'd be an elder in our church. I love that brother. Um, um, but they moved on. And then, you know, Tommy and Amy Coley, you know, they, they tell us a couple of months ago that they're going to be moving away. And the old Chris, before engaging Jesus in that death, would have been, oh, no. Maybe I need to put Tommy and Amy the announcement three or four months later. That way the people in our church won't be seeing all these leaders moving on and think maybe they're on a sinking ship. I was talking to a brother this morning in the lobby and so many of you people are so, are, are so gracious to me. You always give me the benefit of the doubt that I'm, I'm so busy. And, and I was talking to a brother this morning, and most, most of you don't know that I play video games and take naps all week and just preach. Um, but um, 
but I'm, I'm at the lobby with a, with a brother this morning and he tells me, he says, you know, Chris, he says that he was talking to me. We we're having a good chat and he said, Hey, I'll, I'll get out of your way and let you alone. I know you've got stuff you've got to get to. And or he said something along those lines. And I said, no, man, actually I'm, I'm enjoying talking to you. My agenda is not to make my rounds here and make sure people are happy. I'm, that's not my responsibility. I'm just going to be me. I'm going to be who I am. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to be, you know, mean-spirited and irritable and, and not care about you. That's not good either. But I want to be tender and, and, and engaged in you and with you, and, and I want to be with you and experience your life, and I want you to experience my life. And so when I get to church on Sunday mornings, I, like, I have no stress whatsoever. I get, unless the serp, like this morning with my iPad would not open a document, which got tense at home. Um, so, um, so I get here and I'm hanging out with people, talking to people, and I'm just enjoying myself. I'm just enjoying being with people. It, I, that's, that's what I mean when I say rest. Rest. I don't feel the pressure to preach in a certain way, to keep people here, and to say something engaging. I'm, I'm, I want to say something compelling because I think God's word is compelling, and I want to represent God well. And I want you the, to feel the authority of God's word when I preach. So I want to do my homework well. But I'm not, I don't care about wowing you anymore. I don't care about that. I don't care about that. If that's what it takes to keep you here, then maybe this isn't your church. And I don't say that to dismiss anyone here, really. I don't. I don't. I want you all to be with us and stay here. And, and I want to shepherd you. I really do. But I know that I can't keep you here. I can't do that. And so I've died to that mission. I've died to that. It's given me joy. It's given me joy. Becky and Karen got together some of our, our ladies who were leaders in our church yesterday to encourage them. And, and I could hardly think about my sermon. I was so excited when Becky was sending me pictures of what God was doing with those leaders in our church. I was so happy to hear that. That gave me deep joy yesterday. Deep joy. Every once in a while do I feel the death when somebody sends me the, the attendance figures and they're really low one week or the giving is really low and I'm going, okay, I got a payroll this week. How are we going to figure this out? Yes, I'm tempted to walk back into that death. But I'm reminded more often than not that I can experience rest and joy as I let Jesus do his work in me when I'm experiencing a death in myself. That's just some stuff that I've been through. Let me tell you another story. Um, it doesn't make sense for me to tell Ron and pay Ron to disciple you wonderful folks and how to live on mission if I'm not going to do it. I'm not a gifted evangelist. You can ask Ron. He would heartily amen that. Um, but I, re- but I, I recognized, you know, I need to do this. I don't want to do this. I would rather learn the bridge diagram in the three circles and talk to other Christians about it. That's fun. I can do that, you know. But when it comes to talking to non-believing people about that, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't like rejection. I don't want to feel shame. I don't want to go home after talking with people and feel bad about myself. I don't want to do that. Um, all of a sudden, when I'm ministering to people I've, and with non-believing people, it's like a, that's, that, that, that uh, rejected sixth grader is standing there and not the spirit-filled man. I don't like that. But I told Ron, I said, hey, man, you got to disciple me in this. Now, I've told him several times, haven't I? I'm submitted to you, haven't I? I'm submitted to you. You are way more gifted at this than I am. And so Ron said, okay, I'm coming Tuesday. I'm going to train you and Robert. I said, Rob, misery loves company, so Robert had to do it with me. <laughs> and um, and uh, one thing led to another. Ron trained us for a couple hours. He said, I want you to practice these uh, uh, these." 
the, the three circles. It's a wonderful short way to just draw out the gospel. He said, I want you to practice this. And then on Friday, you're going to meet me at the Oak Court Mall and we're going to share the gospel with people. And immediately terror gripped my heart. <laughs> but I thought, okay, this, and, I, and immediately I had a paradigm, the J curve. I'm going to embrace Jesus, engage Jesus in my death because I've got a lot of fear. And so immediately I put it out of my mind. I didn't know what to do with it except just extinguish it. I didn't even let myself think about it. And for the next few days, it led me to a place of dependence on Jesus I have not felt in that way in a long time. And I know that's good when you're depending on Jesus. I know that's a good place to be. And so I started practicing the three circles with people. I did it with my DNA group. I did it with my kids and my wife. I did it with appointments this week. I'm not doing an appointment. I'm like, hey, you got a second for me to draw something out? They're like, okay. And I'm drawing this out. And they're like, great, you know, awesome. And so, praise God. And so Friday we drive up. I open my Bible on Friday morning and it says the first verse that I see, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, thank you, Jesus. That's my word. We drive up to the mall. We walk in and we start sharing with this dude. And I said, Ron, has like anybody like rejected you guys yet? And he said, not yet. And in my mind, I thought, I'll be the first one. So I'm not even doing it. We walk up to this kiosk and there's this Arab dude standing there and Ron starts talking to him and he says, man, did you know that your Bible is totally bogus and it's been interpreted and reinterpreted? I'm sitting there going, this cell phone case, you know, and And I'm just watching Ron just take this guy through the gospel, man. And Ron just humbly said something that every one of you guys can say and that I can say. He said, man, you know, there's a lot of those questions I can't answer. But can I show you this? There wasn't a glorious salvation. And, uh, man, I'm looking at his body language and I'm going, dude, hit the eject button. Let's get out of here. And... In his experience, he was able to come to me and Robert later because I was like, every time I saw the, the body language flare up, I'm like, oh, you know, like I'm dying on the inside. And, and, uh, and Ron says, you cannot read body language. He says, the soul is always awake. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And so, and so he's coaching us because I don't know these things. I don't know these things. And I, on my way home that day, I, we had some good conversations. I had a conversation with the uh, universalists who, who rejected the idea of sin. That was an awesome conversation. Uh, so much fun. And, um, and uh, had a couple of ladies that I was able to pray for who were just, man, just had sore feet who are too old to be working but have to work. And they're sitting down in, the, in, a, in, in one of the benches. And I was able to pray with them and just encourage them. And it was, it, I had some warm conversations. Nothing got ugly or crazy. But my insecurity just went, exploded on Friday. Just exploded. On the way home, Becky said, hey, how'd it go? And, and this is exactly what I told her. I said, um, it was not fun at all. <laughs> but I don't regret it one bit. I need this. Because I had a paradigm, the J-curve. I need to enter in to Jesus' sufferings. I need to. Jesus suffered for those, but that Arab dude who I want to call my brother one day. That universalist who had some crazy, complex, jacked up theology. I want to call her my sister one day. So pray for Sam. Pray for Misty. Pray for these people. And I've committed to Ron that we're going to be doing this weekly. I want to give a few hours of my week to just going out and being 
and, and being with non-believing people. I have to do this. Some of y'all, you may not need to go to a mall because you work with non-believing people. Sometimes it feels like I work with non-believing people, but most of the time I know they're saved. And um, I don't have that many non-believing friends. I think it's sad. It's sad. But I want non-believing friends. I want people, non-believing people to be at my dinner table, to be sitting out, uh, sitting out in my patio with me. I want non-believing people to be a part of my life. I want to be able to have really, really great friends who do not believe in Jesus. I want that in my life. And so I'm entering into the J-curve. This Friday, I've got another guy in my community group. He said, man, as soon as you show me the three circles, Chris, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, do it. And he said, I am terrified. And so... I'm going to be discipling him in this, which is hilarious. Uh, It's really hilarious. So this is what this whole deal is all about that that Paul is pitching here to us. Was it painful? Was it hard? Yes. Oh, man, it was a killer of my ego. But man, God is good. And I'm able to sit there and and interpret what I'm facing, not just as, oh, that that sucked. But rather... That sucked. And I want to know Jesus in that. It has left me with a need for Jesus that I've not had in a while. I need this. You need this. Every one of you are in a J-curve right now. Every one of you. You had your life and you had your eyes set on a resurrection and death came in. It could be a literal death, but I'm speaking primarily metaphorically here. Are you going to engage Jesus in that death? Be with him in that death. Fellowship with him in that death. Because if you say you want to know Jesus, that's one thing. Talk is cheap. But for those of us who really know, can testify that the Spirit of God is inside of us, you'll embrace this. It'll be hard. You'll have to slap yourself in the face. You'll have to have conversations like, hey, I'm going to back out of this, so you need to hold me accountable. You need to do stuff like that. But in the middle of your death, you can know Jesus in ways that you have never, ever even thought about knowing him before. You can know him. I'm going to end there. Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you that you are a good God. I thank you that you love us and you don't give us the gift of suffering because you dislike us and you want to just mess around with us and play with us and we're like pawns to you. It's because you want to form us and change us and make us like you. You are the most whole person who has ever lived and you want to make us whole like you. But not just you want to make all the me's in this room whole. Me, 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 me. You want to use us to make others whole because you love them too. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your, this time that we had. I thank you for you. You are precious. You are sweet. You are gentle. You are beautiful. You are the best, Jesus. You are the best. Amen.